Hi, folks. Welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we share stories and learnings of inclusive people, organizations, and innovation. I'm your co-host, Nadia Butt. I'm an organizational development and belonging strategist. And as always, I'm here with my friend, Rob Hadley, a people and culture strategist specializing in DE&I and people analytics. What's good, Rob? Hello, Nadia. Hi. Everything's good. Almost. Yeah. Well, not everything. Every, almost everything's good. Anything exciting happened for you this week? So we do, you know, I think from Halloween on, I basically just write off the entire year. Right? Okay. So it was like, like, so Me too. I go Halloween to my son's birthday, to Thanksgiving, to the holidays and to New Year's. And so my birthday is there too, I by the it's way. Over. Yeah. Your birthday. So, yeah. So I, I just write it off. And yeah. I just try to enjoy it and, you know, I try to try to be very mindful and try to slow things down a little bit. So, yeah. Yeah. I feel like Target and Costco also feel that way because I, all I see is holiday decor. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it, it starts, I think I saw Halloween candy, I think in August this year. Okay. And wow. we're starting to see some of the holiday stuff as well. So I'm like. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. I just, I just kind of go with that. I used to complain a lot. I just kind of go with it now. You go with it now. Yeah. Now I complain you know, too. Yeah, speaking I of Halloween, I, I must say it was a pleasant surprise for me this year that we hadn't heard of any person wearing like inappropriate or offensive costumes for Halloween. The like no signs of appropriation yet. I mean, they could still come up, but <laughs> I just wonder like, do you think we're learning and growing as a society? It hasn't been. <laughs> There was no news headlines related to it. Maybe because we have bigger. Uh, There's, there's bigger. So headlines. many things. Maybe I just haven't tuned in, right? And I don't. I don't really do much social media, so I haven't seen too many people be outraged. So yeah. I, yeah. So hopefully, hey, there's always a chance that we're learning things. Right. Right. Always a chance. That's right. All right. Thanks for that, Nadia. This week on Inclusive Collective, we'll be talking to Dr. Kathy May Carlson about her newly released book, Disrupting White Mindfulness, Race and Racism in the Wellbeing Industry. We'll also discuss people getting fired for social media posts about the Israeli and Hamas war and how discrimination claims for mental health are accelerating. Later, Nadia raves about Dr. Kishona Gray's work in making gaming more equitable. And I'm going to be talking about inclusive birding. But first, <laughs> Nadia... <laughs> Let's get to the deets. Let's do it. What do you got for us? Yeah. So, Rob, my story this week um, is on the exponential increase of jobs that are being lost due to folks posting about the Israeli-Hamas war. So the advocacy group Palestine Legal has been getting dozens of reports of firings. News sources like The Cut, Washington Post, and Al Jazeera have all shared examples of employees who have posted something on social media or internal workplace socials like Teams or Slack pages where the majority of these folks are being making like pro-Palestinian statements. And because of them, many of these people are then being put either like on warning or being let go. The Council on American Islamic Relations, CARE, their acronym is CARE, the Maryland chapter of CARE has seen 10 times the regular volume of discrimination and hate crime incidents while the L.A. headquarters has seen like a 20-fold increase in calls involving professional repercussions. In addition, some advocacy groups and employment law firms are hearing from concerned Jewish workers who are also facing um, anti-Semitism and, you know, they want like legal guidance or have questions about their rights. 
I'll pause here for a reaction. If you have one. <laughs> so you sent me some of this information, right? And so let me give you a couple of things, right? Like there's, first of all, I think that people act like, it's the, especially in, in some of the articles, they act like posting to social media is like breathing, right? That they have to do it in, in order to feel uh, heard, right? And so it's, it's not, right? You, you don't have to post anything. In fact, in a situation that is complex and developing, I, I think it's sometimes best not to, right? And so sometimes, you know, how you feel two weeks from now is going to be different. And so in something like, like a social media post that is, that is, has some permanence in terms of uh, what it goes out in the world, you have to be somewhat thoughtful about what you're, what you're saying. And certainly, you know, but then there's, of course, there's a difference between what you say in, in a personal uh, scenario versus what you're saying at work. Right. And so yeah. you have to be somewhat thoughtful about how you're presenting some of the things that you say as well. Um, now at the same time, right. There's, there's folks that are posting things that some would say are, or would consider, uh, especially in a very emotional time, inflammatory. Um, and, you know, and, and just as, just as we worry about those people may regret some of the things that they say, I, I'm not comfortable with very powerful people, you know, that quickly are moving to ruin the lives of others mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. using their power to do so. Right. And so I think that they, those folks may also regret their actions and some of the, some of the steps that they're taking. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm talking in particular about billionaires working overtime you know, to make sure that 21 year old kids lose job offers. Yeah. That, right. That's not an impressive stance to me. And, you know, I, I certainly, again, I understand it's a very emotional time for everyone, you know, so I think it's really important to maintain civility, not lose sight of who we are. Right. And, um, and I would extend that to, to, you know, not just billionaires, but, but leaders of, of even smaller companies as well. So yeah. what, what, what are you, what are you seeing? Yeah, I, I think, so there's a couple things like to just your first point of like being thoughtful, maybe taking time. I, I might challenge that. And the only reason I would challenge that is because there is a skewed, um, when we think of like mainstream media, there is a skewed perception right now that is only showing kind of one side of an experience. And when we talk about particularly diversity, equity, inclusion work, Part of it is to really understand both sides and to have both lived experiences be able to be shared. And so I, what I gather, you know, I have a lot of Palestinian friends. I have a lot of Arab friends, I have a lot of Muslim friends, I have a lot of Jewish friends, you know, friends that live in Israel. And what I'm gathering, what I'm observing personally, especially on social media, and then I've talked to, you know, friends or acquaintances that work in workplaces, is that there's one side that is being shared and one that has for a majority of the time been oppressed and not mm -hmm. shared. And so in speaking to many of these people, their sentiments are that if they don't share a certain oppressed side of what's happening, then that voice remains silent. And so that is one of the reasons why folks, when I've asked, like, why are you sharing or, you know, tell me what your hopes are out of like social media either personally mm -hmm. or even just on like teams or slack pages what is the purpose and the purpose is to continue to elevate the voiceless the voiceless's voice so i thought that was something interesting 
I wanted to share examples so far of things that we've seen of people like losing their jobs. So like eLives, Michael um, Eisen was ousted for social media posts, perceived deciding with Palestinians over Israel. An esthetician at a salon in Columbus, Ohio, featured a photo of a Palestinian raising the country's flag atop an Israeli tank, as well as a screenshot of a post on X reading, Gaza just broke out of prison. She was later asked to submit a termination letter. Dr. Zaki Masood was removed from his resident position at a NYU hospital after he posted the Hamas act was a liberation and revolution. I'm using quotes here in an Instagram story last week. And um, Dr. Benjamin Neal, head of a renowned cancer center, was sidelined after he was ripped for reposting a slew of anti-Palestinian posts on social media. And of course, I don't want to forget about those students that you kind of mentioned where who are fearing job backlash or the threat of losing future job opportunities for protesting. And of course, we just heard recently in the last week or so, people who are voluntarily leaving their roles because they don't want to be associated with atrocities that are taking place. So for example, Craig Mokabar, a top UN official in New York, stepped down citing genocide of Palestinian civilians and accuses the US, UK, and much of Europe as wholly complicit in this um, horrific assault. He was recently interviewed. And then, of course, Josh Paul, the director of Congressional and Public Affairs at the Bureau of Political and Military Affairs at the State Department, wrote a two page resignation letter that he posted on LinkedIn. So it's been broadcasted all over social media, citing his objection to continued U.S. military assistance to Israel. He worked in the Bureau for 10 years, and that Bureau oversaw overseas arms transfers to foreign nations. I feel bringing up these particular incidences is relevant because to me right now, the workplace is just so interesting with like the threat of losing jobs, the threat of being put on warning. And I think what this like all boils down to me is I don't know if managers, leaders, colleagues have like the tools or are equipped to navigate difficult conversations like this. Mm. And earlier we saw a lot of bold statements by CEOs and kind of where folks were taking positions. And that kind of caused the impact of that was many folks having different opinions. And we did not equip managers to be able to have those difficult conversations in the workplace. So I think of impact, intent and impact, and how this kind of plays out here. I do want to remind folks that um, a partner, Ray, wrote a fantastic Forbes article. Of course, I was. Uh, I did contribute to it. She asked me to contribute to it. She, um, the, it was titled, Understanding the Impact of Global Conflict in the Workplace. And much of it is really directed towards leaders and their role right now. And so I think it's worth reading. I, I have heard from folks who have read it and offered that it did provide some great insight and just understanding of some tactical tools they could take to really help in conversations. So those are yeah, my I thoughts. Think, that was probably a lengthy thought. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and, I, and I appreciate you laying all that out. I mean, I think that I agree, especially when you think about some of the cases and the examples that you mentioned, the person that made whatever statement in, 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 any, in any direction came back and said, either I apologize or I didn't mean it to, to be insensitive in this way. And 
and that message of, hey, maybe I should have thought it through or, or talked about it differently was not received as well, right? And so, that, and so, and so, yeah, we, we definitely don't have the ability to have good conversations. You talked about companies making statements quickly. And so normally, as I was, as I was saying, you, you'd want to be able to think through all the nuance of a situation. And so, so you know, you say, hey, maybe you shouldn't have, have come out and said things that were uh, that someone perceived as unbalanced to start with. But then I think about other institutions that were slow to make any kind of proclamation, like my, my friends at the University of Pennsylvania, and they were then, you know, were attacked by folks not thinking that they were doing a good enough job communicating oh, their position as well. Yeah, and so totally. it's, so, it, so yeah, for sure, like there is, you know, and that's, that's what I was referring to is, is there's, there's some humanity here. And so being able to have good, healthy conversations and the tools to be able to have conversations on like, in, in a situation like this. Is, uh, is something that we can all get better at, right? Yeah, absolutely. So what do you have for us this week, Rob? All right, so workers are filing discrimination claims, other kinds of discrimination claims for disabilities related to their mental health at a higher rate than before the pandemic started. According to the Wall Street Journal, the increase is partly driven by return to work mandates. So, you know, what is supposed to happen with, with the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, is if I am diagnosed, with anxiety or depression, I make a request for accommodation and the employer and I go back and forth. We figure out what a reasonable sort of accommodation looks like. And so those disapprovals of requests are going up. And so um, oh. I just wanted to read you one thing, Nadia, and get your reaction. So uh, there, was a, there was a quote from a lawyer that said, for these remote work requests, there's a fine line between, I want it because it makes me happy and I want it because if I don't get it, I'll be depressed or anxious, said mm. the attorney. How do you feel about that? I mean, <laughs> there's merit to that. Is there a fine line? So, so <laughs> you know, I think this goes back to like defining our terms. <laughs> like the question is like, uh, gosh, I have so many comments about this. Um, I guess what I would just be curious about is the policies that we're putting in place. What are what are we trying to accomplish by putting those policies in place and are we defining our terms? So, so what I mean by that is like, you know, if you have like, do people now need doctor's notes to kind of share that they have a depression or a men, you know, mental health disorder mm -hmm. that will, or, or, a, you know, a person living with a disability to kind of showcase that they aren't able to come in or, or some sort of hardship. And then when our rules kind of bent and how do we accommodate folks. And I think this discussion is, again, it's having those difficult conversations. And I don't know if managers and HR, you know, folks or employee relations folks are really equipped to have those conversations because oftentimes we put in a policy, but we don't really understand the impact of that policy. So I'll pause there because it sounds like you might have more to, to add to that. Well, they certainly didn't do a good job in the story that was laid out here, right? So this is a story of a veteran who had anxiety, who'd been sexually harassed, uh, and their, their army-appointed therapist had said that they should receive accommodation. And the company said, no, we think you need to come in. And so this reminded me, so the way that they presented it reminded me, this is also a veteran's issue, right? Think about folks mm -hmm. suffering from PTSD, anxiety, depression, and I, it doesn't seem like this is something that's that hard to figure out that you need to approve this particular request. And so, you know, and so tough example there, 
But then also, like you say, score one, another one for flexibility, right? So the more flexible your employer policy is, the less likely you're going to have to then disapprove a, a, a claim like this or deal with other discrimination claims as well, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I think that there's, there's so much in the column for increased flexibility and sure. remote first type of uh, employment policies. Yes, agree, Rob. You know, thanks for those for that. Deet, we'll be right back, folks, with author and thought leader, Dr. Kathy May Carlsaw. Welcome back, folks. This week on Inclusive Collective, we welcome author of Disrupting White Mindfulness by Kathy May Carlsaw. Kathy May is an independent specialist with 20 plus years experience in deep systems change and decolonization. As a recognized thought leader in diversity, inclusion, and belonging, she designs and delivers customized change-making strategies to shepherd meaningful transformation. Kathy May has worked with corporates, policy institutes, communities, and global programs around policies and strategies that generate embodied leadership, justice, and well-being. As author of Disrupting White Mindfulness, Race and Racism in the Well-Being Industry, she advocates for Global South, Indigenous, queer leadership, and emergent transformation agendas. In addition to public speaking, she is an educator, coach, and changemaker. Welcome, Kathy May. So excited to have you join us on Inclusive Collective this week. Thank you so much, Nadia. It's wonderful to be here with you and Rob. So, so many thanks for the invitation. Kathy May, it's a pleasure to meet you. Thanks again for, for being with us. I wanted to start with... Yeah, so the book, right? So Disrupting White Mindfulness, Race and Racism in the Wellbeing Industry. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think of mindfulness and what, as, as an industry. Uh, it's not my first, that's the first place I start. But then as I started to get into the book, I thought, of course, right? We turn everything that's good into an industry and, and you know, there's some things that are problematic with that. So what was the impetus to write this book? What was the, what was the thing that's, Set you over the edge. I have to. I have to get this all down and, and get this out and start thinking about how to disrupt this industry. Yeah, thank you for the question, Rob. You know, I'm not sure that it was an over the edge moment, but I, it's a, it was probably <laughs> a little bit gradual, right? This, sure. this participation in a world in which I was so very deeply invested. I mean, we, we know that the possibilities of um, of of coming to do justice work differently, thoughtfully, slowly, engaging with our audiences or or even mm -hmm. when we have difference and and disagreement. You know, we we understand the many ways in which mindfulness can support the work of social justice. And I was finding that actually at the time, so this was in the noughties and like the very early 10, 11, 12. 2012 and so I was finding that the conversations around social justice weren't actually happening or welcome in the 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 arenas where I was practicing mindfulness hmm. so it was almost as if these had to be two divided areas of life which made no sense and then more and more people started speaking about white spaces and I of course coming from South Africa, which people won't know. I come from South Africa and I'm very tuned into issues of social justice and race and apartheid, etc. Started realizing that people, many people were calling for change and becoming frustrated and leaving the sector 
and doing things differently because the space was not changing. And that really was all of those ingredients really prompted the, um, the research, the interest, the inquiry. Yes, thank you. Kathy May, actually, I'm just curious for folks, for our listeners who may not have an understanding of like mindfulness and what that actually means. Could you give us a brief understanding of what is the a, a mindfulness in my mind is like an umbrella of so many different practices, if that's fair um, to say. Could you elaborate a little bit on what you mean by mindfulness in the workplace, what that might look like for colleagues or our leaders? Yeah. You know, it's such a good question, Nadia, because I think we've adopted an understanding of mindfulness based on a particular interpretation, mostly of Buddhist teachings, right? And and we we kind of don't call it Buddhist because we don't want it to sound devices, we don't want it to alienate people, etc. So it's an interesting question that we we think of mindfulness as this paying attention on purpose in a particular way, non-judgmentally, so that there's certain attitudes that come with it. There's a sense of self-regulation. But of course, all of us know that mindfulness or contemplative practice and becoming more reflective, turning inwards, even when we're doing this in community, and maybe I should say, especially when we're doing this in community, in circle work, this is found in all of our traditions. So, mm -hmm. so it's not only something that comes from Eastern traditions. And, and the fact that that, that was, so I'm going to say this, it was commodified in particular ways, right, and commercialized. And so we do see mindfulness in workplaces now. And it's often promoted as this idea of self-regulation. And there, there are quite a few problems with that. I mean, why, what is it that we're needing to regulate in terms of if we're disgruntled about something in the workplace? Are there yeah. ways of navigating that? Is our, our anger or injust, at injustices, is that not allowed? Do we just become quiet and placid and, you know, speak very calmly about things? So it's, it's become embroiled with increased productivity. We know that that is not the intention, but unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, these things happen, right? We're in a living world where there are other forces at play. Um, and while that may not have been the intentions of propagating mindfulness so widely in the Western world, it's articulated with all kinds of forces of, and I don't know if I can say this on your podcast, but forces of neoliberalism, forces of whiteness, forces of post-racialism, like we don't see race kind of thing. So for mm -hmm. all of those reasons, what mindfulness becomes reduced to is a set of coping strategies mm -hmm. rather than this really being able to give expression to insights from taking care and listening to our inner world and our inner landscapes. So it become much more about control rather than expression and growth and thriving. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Little yeah, that's, that's amazing. And, and you also say in the book, and one of the things I found compelling was that the industry generates the very stress that it sets out to relieve. 
uh, and that it requires meaningful transformation beyond performative diversity. Mm-hmm. And so can you just talk about what, what do you mean by that and yeah. just kind of expand on that a little bit? You know, Rob, I, I find this question so tender because I think DEI, many people who go into that field do it really wanting to see change. And many times DEI is cosmetic because we end Mm. up including people, you know, who have the right look, who improve representation, including people, but not changing systems and structures at all. Mm. You people know this well. And so we end up using these words of diversity and inclusion and improved representation but actually all the social norms and the narratives of the structures and systems that we're so keen to change are very firmly in place. Mm-hmm. And so we're including people into exclusive systems. Right. We're, we're actually creating very stressful environments in which commonly black people, queer people, and, and I know you use the concept in the States, people of color have to work mm. exceptionally hard to fit into white spaces. Um, and so our, our corporations, our business places um, create strategies to be um, acceptable, you know, to change mm. with the times. But Fundamentally, we still have this very firm brick wall in place, and of course the glass ceiling and the glass cliff, etc. That mm. that doesn't really allow people. That doesn't allow for real transformation of work. Mm-hmm. So, so the notions that we've used in the past of tokenism, of lip service, of um, seeming to do good, but in fact, not really leveraging difference. And that concept of leveraging difference is about, can we engage with other ways of doing things? And there seems to be such a preciousness around maintaining the status quo Mm -hmm. that um, those other opportunities are never, ever brought to light. Am Am I answering your question sufficiently, Rob? Yes. No, that makes a ton of sense. And I'm actually thinking about, we had someone who was a corporate executive search expert on this past week, in the last episode. And it's just interesting that they found a very, they, they, they expressed a very common, uh, they, they moved into, in terms of their answer around some of the performative aspects of the work. And so how that can be uh, very harmful as well. And so it makes, it makes a ton of sense. Mm-hmm. And for me, Kathy May, I feel yeah. like you're speaking my love language <laughs> because yes. immediately what came to my mind is like you're trying – what's that saying? Like you try to fit the, the square – or what is it? The round peg into the square. square. I don't Something know what like that saying is. Square into the round bolt. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, whatever that metaphor is. But I – to me, I think that's – that is so very true and, and very much what I observe in doing mm. some of this work. And I'm curious – and just so our listeners know, you you can't you you said you um, had lived in South Africa, but you currently are based in the UK and 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 kind of travel all across the globe. Can you elaborate 
on what you mean by the, and, and you may have already done so, so feel free to kind of reiterate if you'd like, but what you mean by the invisible force of whiteness hmm. that marginalizes and excludes people of the global majority, I love this term, mm -hmm. from meaningful leadership and decision-making. And more so, I'd love to hear from your perspective, if you can share what you're observing from an international lens as it pertains to some of those ideas or, or concepts. Thank you, Nadia. So, so this notion of people of the global majority is really an attempt, and I, I forgive me, I forget the author at the moment, who, who developed the concept. It's really an attempt for us to look more plainly at the world in terms of 80% global majority citizens, 20% global minority. And, and so we see that this is a different way of trying to name a racialized imbalance in terms of power and control. Um, and you know, the, the concept of whiteness, I, I, I am following Bio Akomolafe's work and, and just kind of lapping it all up. And he says so beautifully that whiteness is not about white people. It's about structures that mark all of our bodies, right? That put us into little boxes. And of course, growing up in, in South Africa, of course, we defy the boxes on the classification scheme. So, so the system, Nadia, that that invisibilizes power because it's really invisibilizing power and it, it conducts itself according to certain arrangements and certain modes of operating. So, mm -hmm. for example, we have the old boys network. You know, that's a very good example of how business gets done and how wheeling and dealing happens. And, right. and sometimes... That may include people of the global majority who buy into those systems and structures. Um, I'm thinking of of um, I'm thinking of Clarence Thomas, right, and your your um, Supreme Court system in the state. So so whiteness it can be upheld by people of the global majority as well, um, yeah. and. And this, the way in which that works, and, and we see this working through, coming through the European Enlightenment from the 18th century, where race becomes a way of creating vulnerabilities and creating um, inequalities mm. that stick, that stick. Mm. And so we see apartheid as may not be legislated, but certainly de facto apartheid all over the world, playing out sometimes in very horrendous ways, as we're seeing at the moment. So, mm -hmm. so that those systems and those structures commonly invisibilize power and make them seem very normal and, and, and make the arrangements look like we have to aspire to be like that rather than change the structures and the systems. Mm -hmm. So any any attempts to change the status quo is repressed. There are ways of just putting it down, quelling it and putting it down. I, I'm not sure that I'm answering your question, Nadia. You did, no, beautifully, beautifully you answered it. 
Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Re- I appreciate it. We will have to edit that out because Clarence Thomas is a listener of the show. <laughs> and so, so no. we'll just, we'll, we'll just can't take he, that this little is piece Rob out. But everything else, everything else was great. But, um, so Kathy may, I do want to ask this question. So then what's the, you know, what's the answer? <laughs> how do we decolonize white mindfulness? I... And, and furthermore, how do we decolonize anything that it's intended to be good, but what's wrapped in? Yeah. I don't know, call it hyper-capitalism, white supremacy, it sometimes has unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. So what are, what, are, what are some of your uh, prescriptions yeah. for the industry? Great, great that we're going practical. I'm seeing many developments happening outside of white spaces whereby people are developing programs, ways of being in the world, supporting community programs, projects, collectives, that are almost saying, you know what, it's too much hard work trying to change this from the inside. We're actually just carrying on with our own thing. So I think the the idea of movement building, Rob, of, of actually being able to apply a, a different kind of pressure, which isn't centering whiteness, which is just mm-hmm. developing different systems, I think that's one really important um way of changing society. At the same time, I think there are other incredible um, developments within the states, the work that PolicyLink is doing to change corporations by developing standards, to change legislation, to make Mm -hmm. sure that even at the level of forming corporations, you are required to have a very different looking board from what we Mm -hmm. commonly see in boardrooms at the moment. So training young policymakers and inducting them in ways that don't have to just comply with power over, but really cultivating power within and power with within community context, all of those are happening and taking shape. I have so much faith in younger generations because they seem to see things differently. And I will say Indigenous knowledges are resurfacing that have been mm-hmm. silenced for so long are resurfacing. We need to hear global South wisdom because that too has been silenced. And we need queer theory and queer ways of being to help us move beyond these boundaries and borders that have often been created by people and they should not be there in the first place. So I hope that gives some yeah. flavor of the many possibilities that are already underway. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and Dr. Um, Kathy, may we we wrap up with a resource or recommendation from our guest? And I'm actually, if you don't mind, I'd love for you to share as your resource, if, if it's okay with you, for you to share more about the work you're doing at the Mindfulness Institute, particularly the Climate Youth Resilience, yeah. maybe talk a little bit more or share a little bit about the mission and what you're hoping to accomplish there. Thank you so much for that invitation, Nadia. So the Mindfulness Initiative is is doing climate youth resilience work. And we, we in fact, have just launched our survey to go out to climate youth organizations. And we're wanting to understand whether given the, the increase in climate-related mental health, climate emotions, climate distress, 
whether organizations are using contemplative practice. So we're very interested in the inner landscape. We're a policy think and do tank, but we're very concerned with are we cultivating this inner work sufficiently to support climate resilience within organizations, within communities. We are reaching out globally. Again, we are foregrounding global South Indigenous and queer knowledges, but it's a global survey. It's global work. And our, our idea, our intention is to actually plug resource gaps when we find these. So we're expecting that most organizations don't necessarily use contemplative practices, which include mindfulness and compassion, but also include dance, joy making, sitting together in circle, etc., talking, being still, being silent, all of the contemplative practices that that are known or, or that we are yet to discover. And and we would work with organizations collaboratively to co-create resources where these are missing, and then make sure that we are networking all these organizations to create more of a global community um, that is suitable and purposeful for their needs. Wonderful. I mean, that is amazing. And um, we'll be sure to share um, in our show notes uh, the information and, and links to that great work you're doing. Thank you. Um, Dr. Kathy May Carroll, so thank you so much for joining us this week on Inclusive Collective. What a pleasure it's been. Such a pleasure for me. Thank you both so much. Great, great, heartful appreciation to you. Many thanks. Thank you. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back for our Calm Reflections and Raves and Rants. Welcome back to Inclusive Collective. We just finished chatting with Dr. Kathy May Carlsa. Nadia, that was so delightful, so much fun. I yeah. I you're beaming from ear to ear. What's <laughs> she's you, just uh, lovely. Talking to Kathy and, May. Yeah. You know, she's lovely. She's um she has like a calming presence. I don't know if you picked up on that as well, but right? <laughs> it's she's, impossible to it's not impossible. Pick up on it. Yeah, not to think that. Um I just really appreciated her calling out and the focus on like the systems and the structure and those that being really the barrier. And so it reminds me of, of my own practice of building inclusive and equitable spaces and how really focusing on the practices, the policies, the structure, and really trying to I don't, demantle that in some senses. So I, I really appreciate the conversation and, and, her her take on you know mindfulness as it relates to diversity and inclusion. Uh, any follow up from you? Same. She really focuses on systems as well, and I think I was reflecting that I certainly work on systems and processes as well. But but the tools are quite different in the way that she thinks about the world and interrupting you know some of the some of the structures that are unhelpful in our you know, in our workplaces and, and workplace cultures. So tons to learn from, from uh, Kathy May and would recommend folks pick up that book as well. It's uh, it's a, it's a, there's a, there's a lot in there. It's a, it is a thought starter. Let's put it that way. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. We'll make sure we provide the links to, to access that, that book. 
Awesome. Um, Rob, I've been really reflecting about um, some of the conversation that we had earlier regarding Israel and Hamas, the war and genocide and the atrocities that are happening. And I just wanted to mention, of course, no form of you know, anti-Semitism or Islamophobia or any sort of hate crime, discrimination, xenophobia is ever okay. There, you know, should be policies in place for hate crimes, bias, discrimination of that nature. And I also believe that we should define our terms. I'm a big believer of that. As you know, I've said that so many times on this podcast. I read a post that I'd like to share. Jesse Mechanic, a writer for Huff- Huffington Post, a journalist, writes this, and I wanted to share No more false binaries is what he labels this. If you're calling for a cease, and I'm quoting here, so if you're calling for a ceasefire, it doesn't mean that you support Hamas or that you don't care about Israeli hostages. If you oppose the Israeli government, it doesn't mean that you're anti-Semitic. If you want to end the occupation, it doesn't mean that you don't care about the lives of the Israeli people or that you don't take anti-Semitism seriously. If you're speaking out against the catastrophic siege of Gaza, it doesn't mean that you aren't grieving for the lives lost in Israel as well. It is imperative that we rid ourselves of these false binaries if we ever hope to have constructive conversations about this. End quote. I couldn't agree with this more. I think this goes back to being able to have those, navigating those difficult conversations, especially in the workplace as, as you know, topics arise such as this. And I thank Jesse Mechanic for really sharing that sentiment. That's all I want to share. Uh, all right. So it's that time for rants and raves, but today we got a double rave. So we gotta, not even that. Not even, we're gonna it? we're gonna blow your mind with a triple rave today. Okay. Are you ready? Rave. I'm ready. All right. So first I f- I have to mention that I want to rave about my 10-year-old son and his friends for their work in raising several hundred dollars to help victims of the earthquake in Morocco that happened oh. earlier this summer helping folks repair their homes out there. Uh, so his idea, he executed it with help from his school. So I'm very proud of him, proud proud parent in that regard. And then my then my rave, which- Wait, you know, can uh, we just pause and can I just say that is amazing and I um, really awesome. And I know that you kind of also supported in helping baking some of those goods. I, <laughs> <laughs> well, it just I'm always baking, not right, and so. But that's you know, awesome. Just... Yeah, really, really proud of that work because it to be a global humanitarian, I think, is a really nice thing to start kids off with. So awesome! Thank you for sharing. Yes. That. Yeah, yeah, and then I was excited about this as well. The American Ornithological Society, you know, birders, yeah. right? <laughs> Which, of which I'm a, a card is game that, member. Yeah, is that a is, hobby? Uh, okay. Yeah, I'm a big birder. I love to bird. Do you bird? No, but I actually have a friend who is a birder. Like, yeah, it's we literally will be walking yeah. and she'll be like, oh, that's whatever bird. And I'm like, what? Yeah. Yeah. So, so person after my own heart. And uh, so they are changing all English language names of birds within the geographic jurisdiction that are named directly after people, along with other names deemed offensive or exclusionary. The executive director there, Judith Scarl, said there has been a historic bias in how birds are named and who might uh, have a bird named in their honor. And uh, exclusionary naming conventions developed in the 1800s, clouded by racism and misogyny, don't work for us today. So so cheers to the uh, AOS, which that's right. what I call them. Yeah. Amazing. I love that. Very cool. I'll have to... 
see what types of birds are in my neck of the woods to get out there. Get yeah, out there. get out there. Get out. Exactly. Well, my rave today is um, Dr. Kashona Gray, a brilliant scholar and professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago, studies games and their intersections with factors like gender and race and with the Black experience. And she was eager to learn about the Pokemon uh, game, for example, one of the games that she was kind of looking into. And she argues that in her research, the creators of games and technology like Pokemon ignore real-world factors like the legacies of redlining, slavery, and Jim Crow. Many of, you know, kind of the, the creators of these games consider it irrelevant to their work. And what ends up happening then, she finds, is that it perpetuates those same disparities in the digital space. I just found that so fascinating. So I wanted to call out her work. She's written many books about this topic and provides methods on how to mitigate that bias. Just really cool people doing really cool things that like I would never have known about had I not been just kind of, you know, working my way through DNI news. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Another so great, great reason not to let your kids play video games. Just there don't let go. it happen. It's not good for you. And not instead for bake anyone. goods. Yeah. Yeah. Bake goods. Try to try to do something good uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, for the world. Uh, yeah. I love that. Uh, all right. Nadia. Fun episode. That's it for Inclusive Collective. This is just our friendly reminder that if you're looking for DEI and workplace culture, strategy, consulting, problem solving, or training, you can reach Nadia at Nadia at NazConsultants.com and Rob at Rob at TecanoConsulting.com. Inclusive Collective is a production of Refilion Media and edited by Ari Bethay. We would love to hear from you, so send us your feedback at Inclusive Collective at Refilion.com. You can find us on LinkedIn, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Be sure to check in with us on LinkedIn so you can subscribe to the IC monthly newsletter. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcast. Thanks again to our guest, Dr. Kathy May Carlsa. We'll be back next week. Nadia, stay well. Be well. Be well.